This evening I'd like to reflect on uh, compassion. And uh, when we explore this path and practice, we can see that it has these different elements. Um, and there's an element of it which is the, the wise view, the wise seeing, uh, looking deeply at the nature of things, so including, as we've been exploring today, the sense of uh, impermanence, the changing nature of phenomena, exploring our relationship to uh, the things that arise and pass in our experience, exploring the sense of what is ourselves, the tendency to identify, to grasp, to cling to particular aspects of experience as an identity. And then this uh, leads quite naturally to, uh, to wise intentions. Yeah? To wise intention. In other words, it has certain implications for how we live. And uh, I think as we've mentioned, sometimes people have a, a concern or a fear that meditation leads to a certain passivity or to, you know, just kind of accepting, accepting, accepting. Um, but there's also this um, response, yeah? there's these wise intentions that flow from seeing clearly. And so these can be expressed in our speech, in our actions, in, in how we live in the world. So in terms of uh, compassion as a, uh, an aspect of, of a wise intention or wise way of being in the world, it's helpful to, to think of it right from the start, not, not as a kind of uh, moral command or duty. You know, I should be compassionate, you should be compassionate. But rather it's a response or a quality that more and more makes sense. And we begin to see when we see things and we see the uh, painfulness of hatred or division, the painfulness of separation. Uh, when we begin to see the commonality between ourselves and others, then this compassionate response is one that it follows, it makes sense. It's not like, you know, I don't really want to be compassionate. I should do, I'm supposed to. <laughs> it's that that kind of division isn't so much operating. It's the one that, that flows and follows from the wise seeing. So we can see compassion as the capacity to be with suffering. I may say to hear the cries of the world. Yeah. Is this... A uh, figure in the Buddhist tradition of, of Kuan Yin is said to be the one who hears the cries of the world. Yeah. So to be with suffering without being overwhelmed, without being overwhelmed by it and therefore kind of thrown into despair, but to be present, to meet, to be open to uh, all of the sorrows that are in life, but a sense of a, a steadiness within that. <coughs> And sometimes I feel this is like uh, what we might want from a, a wise and, and helpful listener. You know, if you have some problems and some difficulties and you speak to someone about them, uh, obviously it's not particularly helpful if you feel that person's just not listening at all. They're not tuning in, they're not present, you know, busy doing something else. It's actually a very painful thing, especially when we really need to be heard. When our 
difficulties not being met. But perhaps also if we begin to describe what's happening for us and the other person just sort of says, you know, that's so awful, I can't even bear that either and just sort of run out of the room in some sort of you know, kind of immediate horror, then you know, it may not be so helpful too. And we know that, that it's just those times when we've experienced that, when somebody can just be present for us, can be very, very uh, nurturing, very, very nourishing. Uh, and, you know, I'm lucky to have met that presence many times in my life, but uh, it's one memory that was often particularly strong. It was a time with my, uh, with my stepmom. And, uh, you know, I was having a very difficult time as a teenager at the time. Um, and I just remember this, her sense of, of presence. And I was, you know, lucky enough to have someone like that around. And she'd say, you know, it's okay, it'll change, it'll get better. And I'd say, no, it won't. No, it won't. It's always going to be like, and then she, but she was just this, this presence, and it was it was like, kind of I don't know, say ninety nine percent of me thought, no, this is awful. It's never going to get any better. It's terrible. But just her presence was like this sort of one percent that, a bit, as we've been doing in meditation, really, that it begins to be held in, in a bit of a bigger space. There's something around that, that could meet and hold that, and be still within it. So compassion, therefore, is, again, this sense of being connected. And I think this is a, something we can get a taste for. We can feel this in practice, that if we become more numb to the difficulty in life, if we always turn away from pain and struggle and difficulty, then um, it seems to follow from that that we become to numb to the joys and the pleasures of life too, that there can be a kind of shutting down. And so in our practice, we're opening up, connecting with all of the joys and sorrows of life. And we can feel in that connection that there is, uh, well, there's a kind of freedom, strange as it sounds, even, even in the middle of <coughs> connecting with something difficult, the, the very fact of connection is freeing. And I don't know if you've had this experience sometimes perhaps in, in a bereavement. Um, and, you know, it's well documented that we go through all of these different stages in a bereavement. But certainly times when we can touch into uh, a feeling of, yeah, there's really deep sorrow at the loss of the person. But also in the middle of that, that we're somehow alive to, to what's important we may feel connected with the person who's gone. We feel a sense of, of love, really. Um, and I often think, would we want it to be any other way? You know, and it's really good news to me that this practice doesn't turn us into you know, a bit of dried up bit of wood, a bit of stone that doesn't feel anything. As if that's the goal of the practice. You, know, you hear about um, somebody dying and, and you just, I'm there, cold like a stone. <laughs> You know, I mean, even if we could do that, I mean, who would want to? You know, and the feeling of, of therefore being touched, and and I, you know, I wonder sometimes, in a, in a way, some of the most painful experiences in my life are not necessarily those ones of connecting with a deep sorrow and the connection that can be there, but the pain of disconnection, 
when I'm just caught up in triviality or just turned inwards or my own little world, kind of little isolated sense. And we can feel that in many ways that's more painful than this opening up, connecting to even that which is difficult. And people have uh, this capacity, or we have this capacity, to uh, bring forth a compassionate response, even in the most um, in the most difficult situations, the most trying situations. And uh, Christina Feldman begins her book on compassion with one of these uh, examples. And she says, a young, nu- a young nun was arrested at midnight and placed in a prison for the next six months. Twice a week, she was taken from her cell, blindfolded, bound and interrogated, beaten and tortured. She said, to stay alive, I meditated on peace and non-violence every possible moment that I could. I tried my hardest to think of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and of peace for all humankind. Again and again I meditated on my prayers. I did not feel particularly sad or angry. If the police noticed my lips moving, they told me to stop or I would be punished further. So I whispered my prayer secretly, barely moving my lips at all. A group of us celebrated the Dalai Lama's birthday in prison by singing traditional Tibetan songs. As punishment for this action, the Chinese guards put me in an ice house and removed my clothing for three days. Then the beatings resumed and they went on for weeks. My prayers for peace and non-violence also went on and on with even greater intensity. Yeah, I think it's very moving and heartening to hear something like that. That it's, I mean, this possibility of human beings to respond in that way, you know, in, in the middle of this Uh, you know, kind of unimaginably awful situation. There's this, this, she was able to find this capacity to respond. To respond in that way, this heartfelt commitment to, to non-violence, to peace, to compassion. And I think this is very much born of an understanding that, you know, in those moments, giving way to, to hatred, to division, to adding more suffering to this already awful situation, that would be the real defeat. I mean, there's an extraordinary strength in that. When I reflect on these icons of of non-violence, you know, whether it's kind of Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Aung San Suu Kyi, others, I mean, you can feel that that there's just this, this tremendous strength can be there, this commitment to the ending of sorrow, the ending of suffering, even in in the face of such uh, such challenge. So then it's easy to feel perhaps that compassion may be well, that's I mean maybe she's a very 
amazing kind of being. And obviously on one level that's true. But I think also it speaks to a capacity in every one of us. I mean, we can hear an account like that and kind of worship it from afar. But actually it's also a sense that this is a capacity that's within us that we can touch. And we may be surprised. And we hear these stories many, many times. And I certainly know know things like this in, in my own family where people have, in just through circumstance, being called to just deal with such you know, things that they thought before. There's no way I could cope with that. And somehow they do find a, day, find a way, you know, day by day, moment by moment, week by week, month by month, to continue to turn towards, to, to respond to the suffering in the world with this wish to heal. And so there's so many levels at which this compassion can be expressed, can't it really? I mean, there's certainly the level that we've been exploring many times uh, on the retreat, this compassion for ourselves is really important. Very, I mean, the Buddha says again, you could look all over the world and you would never find someone more deserving of loving kindness or compassion than, than yourself. Again, sometimes we have this idea, oh, you know, in order to be a good person, I need to be self-sacrificing. I need to sort of ignore my own needs. I need to, you know, reject my own situation. I need to kind of, yeah, put all that aside and then sort of focus on others. But we can also see, and again, this is really what we're doing on a, a time like this, that this compassion for ourselves then also becomes the ground for more compassionate responses to, to others. If we can be compassionate with the rage in our own heart, the frustrations, the sorrow, the grief, the isolation that we meet here, you know, then it's, it's so much easier to, to connect in that in others. Yeah. So again, this is what, what we're seeing. I mean, this is a thing, that the, the, the kind of combination of the personal and the universal that we find on a retreat. You know, in some ways, what we're noticing here is very, very personal. The particular stories that are happening to each of us, and they're very individual, they're very unique, particular things going on. But we also can see that that touches into this universal human story of joy and pain and gain and loss, getting what we want, not getting what we want, being separated from loved ones. And the particularities of that, of course, are very, very different. But through the practice, we begin to see our own experience. We'll say, you know, it's got this dual aspect, the personal and the, and the universal. There's a, a story in the, the Buddhist tradition um, of a young mother who um, <coughs> loses her child. and child dies. And uh, she goes to see the Buddha and wants some kind of help with this you know what can you do what can you do how can i think perhaps even you know how can you bring this child back to to life and the buddha asks her to um go around the the village and you know knock on all the the doors and see uh, if she can collect a seed from a house in which nobody has ever died and so of course she begins to do this and goes around and 
and uh, comes to one place and says, ah, oh, you know, no, I'd love to be able to help, but we've experienced this loss last year. Other houses, time and time again, house after house, she hears these stories of loss and begins to recognize the universality of this experience. Being a human being, having relationships, exposes us to this, the truth of loss. And then in the story, so then, and she comes back round to the Buddha, but through this experience, uh, of course, it's not some magical solution to the problem that the, the child comes back to life. But the suffering, the struggle is held in a different perspective. The, you know, this is just happening to me. Why did this happen? You know, this is kind of a sort of unbearable shrinking around it. But somehow there's a, a recognition of this, uh, this universal truth and this, therefore this connection with others, this empathy with others in the midst of suffering. And so we can be compassionate in our families, in our organizations, in the realms of politics, social engagement. And you know, as we can see, this is a much needed thing to try and bring this, it's just the, the, this, uh, this motivation to, to, to respond to suffering very powerful thing to bring into so many um, areas of our life. So one of the things that happens when we, we contemplate this, this universality of, of suffering, the struggles that we have, is that it can open up, as I was mentioning, this sense of empathy. And empathy for me, in many ways, is the opposite of propaganda. You know, there's a propaganda that tries to paint some other people, another group, another society, another nation, another religion, another um, you know, ethnic group, section of society, as somehow so utterly different, so utterly unlike us. And this hard division appears, this division between them and us. And so this contemplation, um, all beings wish to be happy, all beings don't wish to suffer, is at the same time very simple and also very, very profound. Because we, of course, we have our identities and, you know, the, the things that make us different and diverse and that's not to be kind of denied or rejected, but also this commonality. And we can see I mean, it's, well, it's just the tragedy, isn't it, really, of, of human life, how that capacity for that division and that sense of separation and that sense of them and us and those people are nothing like us. And the reason we've got to do this to them is because they're so terrible. And we can see this story just comes up again and again and again. It's very powerful. I'm not quite sure if it's quite the right word, but it's like a kind of powerful archetype or a powerful pattern in human life, to do this, to scapegoat, to make uh, other people somehow so fundamentally other, or some fundamentally different. And uh, so there's this uh, quotation by um, Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that really um, captures this. He says, if only 
there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the hearts of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. Yeah, it's such a wise reflection. This Again, this, this line dividing good and evil, it can't be outward. It can't be that lot over there. They're the bad ones. They're the evil ones. Us lot over here. We're the good ones. Uh, but it, it's such a kind of tempting mythology that we, we get drawn into. And he says, that, you know, this sense, if there were evil people committing evil deeds... So that's what we need to do in the world. Somehow get rid of those evil ones and then everything will be okay. And it's this kind of dangerous and alluring and uh, destructive uh, myth. But this compassion, this compassion can really see through that, the empathy beyond that, that wishes to make things so separate, so different. And you may reflect, again, how that comes up in different situations. You, it may be in your family. Again, the people who look into the dynamics of families often talk about this. Isn't they? Certain members of the family begin to get scapegoated. You know, everything's supposed to be bad about the family scene. That one person. Or in our organizations. And... Uh, you know, again, we can see this time and again, can't we? You know, what's the relationship between different departments in an organisation, or between the the management and the staff, or the you know, whatever it is, it's this, these divisions just seem to be so easy to to be there. But again, this reflection, just like me, they wish to be happy, just like me, they don't wish to suffer, and reflecting on the commonality of experience that these people have. You know, loved ones like us, good days, bad days, ups and downs, joys and sorrows. Really connecting with that commonality is very skillful. So there are some extraordinary people, in my mind, uh, trying to bring that kind of perspective to some of the most painful and difficult situations uh, that we find and really bring that uh, sense of compassion, sense of empathy into that situation. And uh, so again, another one of those is described in, in here. Uh, Joseph, uh, an Israeli-American man, recently spent several months in Israel in the West Bank with a group of eight children. Four children were Palestinian, and four were the children of Israeli settlers. The two groups lived radically different lives, yet they both lived with fear and mistrust. Initially, Joseph spent time with the group separately, living, talking, and making friends with them. Each group of children spoke of the others, of their feelings of being threatened, and of their experiences of violence and rage. The word hate came easily to them. These eight-year-old children were well-versed in the stereotypes that had divided their cultures for generations. Eventually, Joseph arranged for the children to spend a day together. He brought the Israeli children through the checkpoint into the West Bank. Their initial steps towards one another were hesitant, hampered by a lifelong inheritance of prejudice and suspicion. 
then they began to find a common language in games. And they ate together and laughed together. Eventually they began to talk of their hopes, fears and dreams. That one day was followed by several more. And as they began to trust one another, they shared not only laughter, but also tears. And, uh, you know, this book, of course, was written some time ago, some years ago, and, and this that situation certainly was very much in, in my mind, and I'm sure many of us uh, recently in, in Israel and Gaza. And, and uh, yeah, and I'm certainly, I don't have any, hopefully any kind of arrogance to sort of think I can sit here from so many miles away and somehow I, you know, I've got it worked out, we've got it all worked out. And situations have such complexity and difficulty and pain woven into them. But there's something I certainly, you know, kind of feel that there's something about connecting when we're confronted with those situations to be in touch with the sort of collective craziness of it, the collective craziness of human beings. And, you know, we, people often reflect on this, that we can create these nuclear weapons and we can it, map the genome and build all these amazing computers and mobile phones, and we can do all this kind of thing. But this sort of basic question of how do we release and overcome these divisions, it seems very elusive for human beings, you know, very elusive. But again, you know, whatever the, the particularities of all of these situations, it's definitely, you know, we can feel that this sense of empathy and compassion must be part of that picture, part of the thing that heals. When those, as we're hearing from that story, when those things are so separate, perception of the other is so separate, they're so different, so unlike me. And to begin to feel and see the, the commonality And also I think there's something too about compassion of not, uh, you know, not having to make it kind of all or nothing, not having to make it this kind of heroic transformation or somehow it's worthless. You know, again, I don't, it'd be interesting to hear more about that story, what was around that and what's happened to those eight children now. You know, on one level you can think, well, hang on, you know, they did that, but all these things are still going on. And this too faces us in our life. I think if, if we feel like in order to be compassionate, we've somehow got to heroically solve all of the world's problems. I mean, this is just somehow going to you know, lead to a sense of burnout, exhaustion. You think kind of impossible, too much to take. And so when the, the, the suffering becomes this kind of overwhelming thing. So compassion too, again, is about meeting what's in front of us, what's in our lives, what we can meet, what we can connect with, and not overlooking the significance of the difference we can make in the situations in which we find ourselves.
So when we, we contemplate uh, compassion, it's helpful to um, hold it within this, um, this wider context of uh, what we refer to as the Brahma Viharas in the Buddhist tradition, these four qualities, which are really about how we can meet life in all of its different situations. And Brahma Viharas means something like the dwelling place of the gods or the sublime abidings. Yeah? So in other words, when you think, where would I like to live? And sometimes we think about that on quite a literal level. You know, I don't want to live in Manchester, Liverpool, Devon, where am I going to live? But we can have this feeling, well, where do I want to live in terms of the, the kind of the climate of the mind in which I want to live, the way of responding, the way of being that I want to make a home? And these Brahma Viharas are a really rich place to live, a really nourishing place to, to begin more and more to make our home. Uh, and so they include loving kindness, what we call metta, loving kindness. Um, and this is something that includes, and again we can see that, um, people that we like, people that we don't know, and even people that we find difficult, people that we don't like. And so our responses, our responses of loving kindness can um, undermine our habitual way of seeing other people. Because again, a certain way of seeing other people, certainly in terms of craving and aversion, you might look at someone and you think, ah, have you got something that I want? Or are you in my way? Or are you nothing to me? You know? So again, if we're approaching the world in that way, in terms of me and what I can get, then of course people easily divide into those categories, those that can help us, those that are in our way, and those that are neither. Yeah. So with loving kindness, we, we also uh, kind of soften those those divisions in a way. Yeah? And it doesn't mean, and it's helpful to mean this, it doesn't necessarily mean we need to like everybody on that level. It certainly doesn't need, mean we need to condone behavior that is harmful. And to wish loving kindness for someone is not to, to condone behavior that harms others. But again, it's about the heart that, that releases division. Yeah, and we feel the painfulness of that division, dividing the world into those categories, as if they're strong, solid, kind of <coughs> solid walls between them. And the Brahma Viharas also includes this quality of mudita or joy. And I think it's always helpful to to bring this together with the compassion. So when we we contemplate the sufferings in the world, contemplate the sorrows of the world, also to be open to the joys, yeah? to be open to the loveliness, to be open to the beautiful, the, we sometimes call the 10,000 joys and sorrows of this world. <coughs> yeah. And we can feel, and it's very helpful to balance these qualities if our, our minds are just drawn towards you know, the difficulty, the conflict, the pain and distress, as if somehow that's the whole story of life. Or, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that can make it feel overwhelming, but so to open to the beauty and the loveliness and the kindness and, the, yeah, and that which is uplifting. And so then along with uh, compassion, 
then the fourth of these, these qualities is, is what we call upekka, or equanimity. And the quality of the heart that can be close to all things, to, to meet the joys and sorrows of life, the praise and the blame, the success and the failure. Again, somehow to realize it, recognize that these, uh, these changing qualities, these opposites, these comings and goings will always be there, always be part of life. And we can't eradicate one side of it. And life becomes quite frustrating if we try to do that. You know, I'm going to have a life with just pleasure. How am I going to do that? Banish pain. I'm going to have a life with just praise. Nobody's going to say anything negative about me. I just want to be praised all the time. Just bathe in the praise. It's just not possible to do that. You know, you read the, the life story of the Buddha. Even the Buddha is subject to, uh, to blame, to criticism. You know, it seems that, that you know, it's, it's just unavoidable. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if you... Sometimes, I don't know, maybe with the internet we can be a little bit more aware of this than we used to be. <laughs> Have you ever had this experience where you might read a, an article from a newspaper on the internet? So, it's a perfectly reasoned article and somebody's writings and thoughts and things. And then you can look at the comments section <laughs> at the bottom and this kind of vitriolic blame and criticism <laughs> can sort of pour out. You think, oh, you know, just a person sort of saying that. So. Yeah, maybe maybe that can also help us when we, we receive that. That you, you can say things with, yeah, we just can't avoid that. The best will in the world. Sometimes it, this seems to come back. Hmm. So this sense of balance, this equanimity, this sense of peace, where we can open to be with the joys and sorrows of life. Uh, and find freedom within them, freedom to respond, yeah, freedom to respond wisely. And the, the final thing I wanted to just touch on again was to return to the theme of, of uh, compassion for ourselves. Again, sometimes, again, these reflections can, uh, if we perhaps don't don't hold them in a particular way, it might lead to a certain kind of frenetic sense. Oh, you know, I've got to go out and do all these things, get involved, get so busy. And so holding to this, this compassion for ourselves within this. And so Christina says here, at times when faced with suffering that feels too much to bear, it's compassionate to give yourself the permission to back off a little. A woman told me of her escalating levels of distress as she tried to meet the needs of her young family and her aging, frail parents. In the midst of this vortex of need, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Even in the midst of her own grief and illness, she continued her relentless endeavors to ensure that everyone in her life was safe and happy. She believed, she said, that it would be an unbearable failure to step back from caring for those around her. Guilt and obligation governed her days until she collapsed from exhaustion. It required an enormous shift in understanding for her to see that to care for others while neglecting herself is not compassion. Taking time to listen to the signals of her body 
uh, to her body and heart meant sacrificing the role of being the perfect carer. Again, too, this is holding this sense of compassion wisely. It's not, again, another uh, ideal that we might attach to. And then ignoring the, the movements, the, what's happening here in, in this being, and turning compassionately towards that too. And so then uh, that, to me, uh, invites a sense that actually coming on retreat is a very compassionate thing to do. And you may think, well, hang on, how have I been compassionate? I've been walking up and down the grass. I've been <laughs> sitting on this cushion. I haven't been out in a soup kitchen helping out. I haven't been campaigning. I haven't been... And of course, there's place in our life for those things too. But we can see, really, that this, this uh, contemplative practice, this practice of coming back, practice of nurturing, practice of connecting, becomes in our life the ground from which that ethical, compassionate action can flow forward. Again, it's just a, a sense, I'm sure we, we, you recognize this, you know, when we're frazzled, we're stressed, too much going on, too many demands, too many things buzzing, da 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 and then what, what kind of response are we there for others? That capacity to listen deeply, to connect, to be with suffering, but not be overwhelmed by it. You know, requires also this sense of, of nurturing, connecting with uh, our own well-being, and feeling that too then flows into our concern and care for others. Oh, let's uh, sit quietly for a moment and just allow the words to talk to be absorbed. Coming back to the simplicity of this moment, the body in contact with the ground, in contact with the cushion. Breath coming and going. Sounds coming and going. practice be for our own well-being and for the well-being of others. May the fruits of our practice flow out into our lives, into our relationships with 
friends, family, colleagues, neighbours, and the benefits flow out into the world. May all beings be free from fear and from danger. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with ease and with kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.